Well, last week, if you were with us, we started a new series of messages that we're calling God with us. And we're calling it that simply because that's the heart of our Father God. The heart of God is to be with his people. And in fact, we see that all the way from the very beginning, the first few pages of the Bible. You open the Bible and what do you see? You see a God who by the word of his power creates the heavens and the earth, who creates then man, male and female, after his own highly relational image. So he gives us eyes, not just so that we can see, but so that we can know that he can see. It's his image he's showing forth. He gives us ears, not just so we can hear, but we can know that he can hear. He gives us a mouth, not just so we can speak, but to let us know that he's a God who speaks, that he sees and that he hears and that he speaks to us. So you open the Bible, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates man, male and female after his own image. He puts them in the paradisal garden, the garden of Eden that we've all grown up at least hearing about. And then what does he do? Because it's very telling. Well, then he winds the whole universe up like a clock. He retreats to the lofty heights of heaven. He pops all kinds of popcorn. He invites in all the angels. They throw up the big plasma screen. And then from a distance, he watches us play out all of these things like a reality TV show here on earth. That's what he's done with humanity. Is that it? It's not it. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates man, male, and female. He places them in the garden. And then what does he do every day? He shows up and he walks with them. Which is a significant thought. I mean, the word walk in the Bible means more than to take a walk. It has a metaphorical meaning as well, and it means to do life. Your walk is your life. The heart of Father God is to do life with his people. But, as we also saw last week, to walk with God is to follow him. It's to come to him and realize, hey, wait a minute, you're God and I'm not. You're all wise and I'm not. You're all knowing and I'm not. You're very, very good. In fact, you're the very definition of good. And honestly, not so much. It's to come to him with not just your sin, but with yourself and to throw it all in for the Lord and to say, okay, I don't need just a savior. I need a savior and a Lord, which, by the way, is the way it works. It's a package deal. So God, here's not just my sin, but my plans. Here's not just my sin, but my purpose statement for my life. Here's not just my sin, but the path or the paths that I'm on or the paths that I'd like to be on. The whole shooting match, I'm all in, here you go. To walk with God is to follow Him, which is exactly what our first parents did, but only for a time because you know the story. The serpent enters into the garden and he comes bringing to them the same lie that he brings to every one of us and all the time. And what is the lie? It is that true life is found not inside of an intimate person, relational walk with God through life and eternity, but rather it's found outside of it. See, the lie is that instead of finding everything that your creator who is God has created you to long for in him, well, in him, you'll find more outside of him. So if you follow God, you lose. If you don't follow God, you win. That's the lie. And just like the rest of us, They bought it. In fact, they ate it. The woman ate of the fruit of the lie. She gave to her husband with her and he ate of the fruit of the lie. And what was lost? Three words. God with us. God with us. And yet, you know what you find on the same page? 
You find that this God who has been rejected by us, that this God who has been spurned by us, that this God who has been set aside by us, that this God who in whom is found everything, we've bought the lie that, well, in whom is found pretty much nothing. This God who by us has been called a liar because he's been real honest about what's found in him and what's found in all the other paths that we have the option of walking down. Life and death. That God still desires to be with us. And we see his heart on the same page because he comes and he makes a promise that emanates from the garden to the Christmas story. And the promise is what? It's a promise that he will send a deliverer who will come and undo what happened in that garden and what's happened in every one of our lives ever since as a result of that sin and as a result of our own sin. And what does he call that deliverer? Because it's pretty poignant. And we talked about it last week. He calls him the seed of the woman. Now, you've got to think about that because, you know, if you're thinking physiologically, biologically, procreatively, in other words, in the way that babies are made, that doesn't make a lot of sense. The seed comes from the man. And the Bible affirms that in various places, but not here. He's promising a deliverer who will reverse the curse and redeem all that sin has destroyed and damaged for his people. And he calls him the seed of the woman. What he's saying is that he's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to have a human mother, but he is not going to have a human mom, a human father. What he's saying is that a day is coming when God himself will, through a supernatural conception, clothe himself, get dressed in our flesh, in our humanity, and come forth from the womb of a virgin as one of us so that he, as a man for men, male and female, might do what our first parents failed to do and what everyone since has failed to do, including me, including you, sorry, but it's true, which is what? To walk perfectly with God. Perfectly in our thoughts. Perfectly in our words. Perfectly in our deeds, perfectly in our motivations and our attention, perfect praise, perfect thanks, perfect reverence, perfect adoration, perfect obedience. Guys, what God requires of us is perfection. He will clothe himself in our humanity and come forth and do that for us since we have all so miserably failed. But that's not enough. For that he then will also, as a man for men, male and female, lay down his infinitely valuable life, for he is God-made man, and pour out his perfect blood, that the penalty for our every transgression, for our every moment in which we've bought the lie that something more is found outside of God than inside of God, might be paid in him. And then he was raised from the dead, that he defeat sin and death for us, for his people, for all who have faith in him, that through faith in him, well, what's restored? God with us. But when you walk with God, you follow him. And that's what we're talking about this Christmas season. We're saying, all right, what does it look like, therefore, then to walk with God by faith? Okay, and we're looking at it, first of all, in the lives of the Christmas characters and then by extension in our lives as well. Last week, we started by looking at the story of Mary, which we're going to continue today. But what did we see last week? What did we learn? That it looks like total submission. 
that it looks like bringing more than just your sin to God, but bringing your whole self to God and recognizing he's God, you're not God and saying, all right, I'm all in. Here you go. And committing to wake up every single day and to take up your cross, as Jesus says, which is the language of death and to die to yourself that you might truly live by walking with him. You're like, where is he going? Where is he going to take me? What is the path going to look like? You don't get a path. You get a guide who takes you down a path. And he takes you step by step. As you focus on him, as you trust in him. As you press into him. But it looks like total submission. Not partial submission. So that's what we learned last week. This week, what we're going to learn is that walking with God results in praise. And it's a praise that emanates from a heart that is captured by the realization that, wow, in Christ, in this deliverer, God is undoing everything that the curse from the garden forward has done and everything that sin in our lives and all around us has done as well. And I just want to pause at the beginning and say, Look for reversals and listen for praise because that's worthy of praise. And it's worthy of praise in Mary's life and in mine and in yours. So we pick up our story today with a pregnant Mary whose explanation, by the way, for the pregnancy is virgin birth, which makes perfect sense if you are the mother of God. But what are the odds on that? Because I think the people in Nazareth are wondering that. Wouldn't you have wondered that? Luke says this, Luke 1, beginning at verse 39, he says, In those days, meaning shortly after the miraculous conception of Jesus, who is the seed of the woman, who is God-made man by the Holy Spirit, what happens? Mary arose and she did something that no young lady in her day and age would have done. She went, we read, by herself is the idea, with haste, with urgency. She's getting out of town. And she's going with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, which would be located about 70 miles from her hometown of Nazareth. That is terrifically unusual. That is not something in that day and age that a young 12 to 13 year old betrothed virgin would do. She's in her betrothal period. The contract has been signed with Joseph. She's proving over the course of a year her purity. By the way, how? By not showing up pregnant. He's proving he can take care of her. And how's that? By preparing a home to to take her to. It was unusual in those days for someone like Mary in that state to even leave the seclusion of her family's home to go anywhere, much less to travel 70 miles by herself to some other town. So what do you think Luke's saying here? I think he's hinting that maybe the virgin birth story isn't going over too well in Nazareth. Maybe it's not playing well with mom and dad. Maybe friends and family are like, oh, right. And then, of course, there's Joseph. I mean, if anyone in the world knows he is not the father, it's him. Mary leaves. So she travels alone, Mary does, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah, who, as we're going to see in a second, is the husband of Elizabeth. But why does she go there? Well, if you remember last week, she's told by the angel, not just that she, Mary, is going to become the mother of the Christ child, but that her relative, Elizabeth, who has been barren all of her life and who's beyond menopause, she's an older lady at this point in her life, incapable of having children, 
is also miraculously pregnant, and parenthetically, her pregnancy was also announced in advance by an angel. Two incredibly unusual pregnancies, to be sure. She's pregnant with John the Baptist. So now why does Mary go rushing off there when the news of virgin birth doesn't exactly get met with applause in her hometown? She goes there because she realizes these are probably the only two people on the entire planet who will not think that she's crazy or that she's a liar or that she is, and it's a very uncomfortable word. A whore. Oh, she's anything but that. But that's the kind of stuff she's going to be getting in her hometown, guys. And even if these people are not brave enough to say it to her face, you know, that's what they're saying as they, you know, point at her, as they stare at her, as everything gets kind of awkwardly quiet whenever she walks in the room, as they whisper, as they murmur. She gets the message. She goes to Elizabeth. And Luke says that as she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. That's the custom of the day. It was the custom for the traveler to greet the host. But then the custom was for immediately a blessing to be conferred. And it would be conferred by whoever the lesser person in the relationship was. So as you compare Mary and you line her up alongside Elizabeth, Elizabeth who's married, Mary isn't. Elizabeth who is a much older woman, Mary is a young girl. Elizabeth who's married to a priest of all things and so has some sort of you know position, if you will, in the society. It's easy to see who the lesser or in greater person is, at least according to the customs and conventions of those days. But now watch what happens because God who is gracious and who in Jesus is reversing all things reverses this too. Mary enters the house and she greets Elizabeth. And then we read in verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, meaning John the Baptist, Elizabeth's baby, leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit who then reverses everything and delivers through Elizabeth a message to Mary. And it's a blessing. She exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb, which is a very different message than the message she left behind in Nazareth where she was being called a crazy, lying, and you remember the other word, don't you? God takes even the cursings that are put upon His people as they submit and follow Him and He converts them into blessings. He's, it's quite remarkable the way this all works. And so we read, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, she comes in, gives the greeting. You're expecting Mary now to bless her. Mary's opening her mouth to now deliver the blessing. And Elizabeth cuts to the chase. She beats her to it. And it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb to which she adds. And she's marveling. She says, why is this granted to me that the mother of who of my Lord, she recognizes who Mary is carrying the seed of the woman. The one born of the virgin, God made man, the great reverser of all things and restorer of God with us. She says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy in praise at the presence of the long awaited 
Jesus, the long-awaited deliverer. And then she says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, just pause there for a minute. What God speaks is his word. She's believed his word. What is she saying? She's saying, blessed is she who doesn't find this whole story to be a little too fantastic, but instead believes that the God who can speak the worlds into being can and has done this. Wow. And now notice what Mary does. Because it's the natural response of a heart that is captured and taken by the realization that, whoa, wait a minute. Through this deliverer, God is, well, he's going to reverse everything. He's begun the reversal and restoration that will be complete in the end. Everything from the garden and in our lives as well. Mary breaks into song, guys. She breaks into praise. Walking with God results in this kind of praise. And listen to what she sings and look for reversals. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And why is that, Mary? Well, because he has looked at the humble estate of his servant and noticed that for his sake, I'm being called things like crazy and like liar and like you already know. But he doesn't leave it there. Look what he does with those cursings. She goes on and she says, for behold, it's not a word we use a lot, is it? You don't do that, you know, you pull up to the drive through. Behold, I would like a Big Mac family value meal and behold, I would love it if you would supersize it. But think about what it is. It's a word of sight. She's saying, I see something. And what she's doing is inviting you to see that same something. So what is it that she wants us to see? What does she see? She says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me what? Crazy? Liar? Whore? No. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, which is a little bit of a head-scratcher if you think about it, because you kind of want to come to Mary and say, well, yeah, but what about your generation? I mean, like, I get it today. But what about your generation? Because last I checked, you left Nazareth because, you know, they weren't exactly calling you blessed. They were calling you other things. To which I guess I would reply, yeah, but what did they call her today? Because I think that either from heaven or hell they call her blessed, along with all generations. And what's amazing to me is that even amidst the stares and the points and the whispers and the murmurs, the indignity that she is bearing and suffering through in a very real and profound way in her days on planet Earth through which that reputation followed her to the grave... Mary is able, with the eyes of faith, to look forward and to see the reversals that are coming her way, the sure and certain reversals as a result of the sure and certain ministry of the one that she carries. And even amidst the indignity of her day that she's enduring, even in the midst of her suffering, to put it a different way, she is able to praise the Lord her God. 
That's awesome. That's amazing. I saw a really dramatic example of that a couple of weeks ago when I went to Haiti with 10 other people here from Rio. We went there to visit and kind of check out, I guess, the ministry called Mission of Hope that we sent our students to for 10 days last summer that Matt and some others have visited over the last couple of years and, um, and that we're hoping, a little foreshadowing, that next year you will go visit and do ministry with for one week. Keep that in mind. And we went not just to kind of check it out, but we went to sort of experience what we're going to ask everybody to go back with us and to experience. And so we wanted to eat what everybody ate and sleep where everybody's going to sleep and, you know, bathe where everybody's going to bathe and do what everybody's going to do. And one of the things that we did is we went out into these villages with interpreters so we could talk to the people and we walked through them to meet the people and to see what it's really like on the ground in Haiti. It's hard to describe, truthfully. It's something. One of the villages we went to, we were met outside the village by one of the ladies who works in the kitchen at Mission of Hope. So she'd seen us over the few days that we had been there, and and she knew that we were coming, and so she had kind of connected with our interpreter. So she comes walking up to us just as we're arriving, and she's got like two or three other ladies with her, and they're carrying these two little infant boys, two-month-old twin boys, and uh, and they hand the boys to the two women in our group, Sandy Ives, our children's ministries director, and Pam Ross, who's the uh, wife of one of our elders who was also with us on the trip, and they say, follow us. So we're following them through the village to the home of these little kids. And we get to the home, and I want to put that in quotes, okay? It's not a home like you think of home. It's a shack. In fact, it's probably worse than whatever you think of as a shack. And so we get to this this home, which is home for them, and it has like a little courtyard, and it's got like this metal door, you know, like the sheet metal door that you make roofs out of and stuff like that. They use a lot of that around there. So anyway, that's the door, and it's and the hinges are flip-flops, you know, like your kids wear. And so they kind of pick the door up and sort of move it. And then we walked in, and I was in the back of the group, and they wanted to kind of herd us all in to the house, which is ambitious. So everybody's going in the house, and I went in the house eventually, but I sort of hung out in the courtyard first, and I'm just sort of looking around and going, just taking it in, because, I mean, you got to kind of take it in. And I see that there are two little dogs in this courtyard, and, and they're both, like, so skinny that you could count every one of their ribs and every one of their vertebrae. One of them is clearly dying. He's, like, off by the fence. He's made himself a little thing, and he's just sort of huddled there, and he's not going to make it. The other one is drinking out of this man-made hole in the ground that's next to the house. And I'm thinking, what is that? That's the bathroom. Oh, okay. There's a little boy, he's probably two. He's sitting on the ground right in front of the entrance to the house. And, um, and he's kind of just sitting on the muddy ground, dirty. And he's got a pot, an empty pot that they use for cooking in his lap. And he has a spoon in his little hand. And I guess whatever they had cooked in it last kind of got burnt onto the bottom. You know, so there was like an eighth of an inch of some kind of black crud that I'm not sure you could get off with a chisel. And what he's doing is he takes his little hand with the spoon and he sticks it in the pot and all the flies come out. And then he scrapes. He gets whatever he can scrape up onto his spoon and then he eats it and all the flies come back and then he ticks his little hand back in and all the flies come out and then he scrapes. You get the idea? We go in the house 
it's really hot. Like it was hot outside. We got in the house with like an oven. I mean, some of us were going, hey, I'm not sure we can last too long in this house. It's where they live. There's a front room and then there's a bedroom behind it, which is about of equal size. And all seven of them sleep in there. There's one bed. And one of the babies is sick. Hasn't urinated in a while. You know, the kind of thing that you would take notice of and go to the doctor or to the emergency room or to the... But where are you going to go? I mean, Mission of Hope has a clinic. That's good. They have one of two ambulances in Haiti. Two. Two. It's overwhelming. Would you take my child? Think about that. That was a con, kind of a common theme. One of the things we were told as we're walking around is, you know, look, if you have two, three, five, six, eight kids and one of them gets sick and you have no resources, I mean, like you're barely making it. You've got to make a decision between your sick kid and your healthy kids because you can't care for the whole of them. So they take these kids that get sick and either they have to let them die or they have to hand them over to some kind of an orphanage or somebody else. So she's saying, can you take our child, which we can't legally just, you know, take him home with us, though that would have been the impulse. So we pray for them. We come walking out. We walk across the street and there's an older lady, old in Haiti. I asked the interpreter is 40 and above, just so you know. 40 and above. One of the guys that we were with as we're talking with these families just kind of commented that his mother was 84 years old. And these people, I thought, were going to fall off their chairs like they actually asked him twice to clarify what he had said because they have no category for somebody who gets that old. So we're talking to this older woman and the news is starting to get out in this little part of the village that the American pastors are there, you know, and. And so will you come pray with this boy? Some lady, one of the neighbors asks. And so we do. We go in and, and there's this boy and he's laying on the ground and he's covered with a sheet. and He's been laid out for like 16 days, they tell us. And for the last three or four days, he has not been able to speak. And he's laying there with a sheet on his hands on his chest. And he kind of looks at us with his eyes and he sort of raises his hand as if to say, hi. So we prayed for him. And as we're coming out of that door, we're pulled in to the immediately next door hut where there's an older man, he's blind, he's deaf, and he too can't get up because he's sick. And we pray for him. And, you know, later on in the day, as we sort of unpacked this kind of a deal, you know, just talking to the team, I said, you know, look, this is about 20 square yards of a 10,000-person village, and it's one village of how many? Like, if you could just zoom the camera out and mark in red all the people who are potentially going to die... I mean, we experienced three in. It's really something. On the day that we got there was a Tuesday and we went riding around the villages doing that, you know, meeting the people, seeing what it's like. And and uh, by Tuesday night, man, I was tired. I mean, you know, I was up at like four o'clock in the morning to make the flight and whatever. And everybody else was tired. But Carter, who is our director of student ministry, said, you've got to go to the worship service on Tuesday night. You have to go. 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 I like all I wanted was a cold shower at that point. But I said, all right, OK, man, we'll go, you know, and it starts at seven. OK, so we're heading. I mean, we're on the islands. I mean, this is Caribbean. So when does it really start? That's my question. And I'm thinking that because not only are we in the islands and it's the Caribbeans, but these people don't have any means of transportation. They take what's called tap-taps. You know what a tap-tap is? It's five people on like a moped. 
motorcycle or something. It's it's like a truck that they are contortionists to get into because there's so many people. And when you want it to stop, you tap, tap. So I don't know if these people have walked for, you know, like an hour to get there, or if they rode five on a motorcycle, or they all contortionists got into the tap-tap or whatever. But it's like 7.05, and we start heading down thinking it's safe, you know, because it'll probably start at 7.30. Oh, no, they started at 7, and it was packed. Think about that. The church is located at the bottom of this hill in this big compound that is Mission of Hope, and we're staying up the hill, so we're walking down the hill, and we can hear the singing of these people. It was magnificent. It was unbelievable. The church is an open-air church, so you know there's no walls. It's just, it's just rolling up the hill and rolling over us as we're walking down the hill, knowing the kind of lives that they have. It's in the shape of a cross, and so we kind of came in off one of the cross beams and sat about a third of the way from the back and for about an hour and a half just took in this worship service, most of which, you know, was in Creole. So we didn't understand, but one thing we did understand, and that was hearts that have been captured by the reality of Christ. I have not seen a louder, more enthusiastic, more authentic outpouring of praise anywhere Nothing like what I've seen there. And you say, well, how in the world can these people praise like that? I mean, they're living in a sea of death, which is true, really. They've got nothing. No, that's a lie. They have Jesus. And they have nothing that insulates them from Jesus. They don't have anything else other to trust in. Parenthetically, and as an aside, everything that insulates us really isn't worth trusting in either. either. Their praise comes forth from hearts that are captured by the reality that they belong to a deliverer who will in the end reverse everything that the fall of man has done and everything that sin has done in them through them, and to them, and us. And because they can see that with faith, they can praise Him with their whole heart and with their whole life, even in the midst of the sea of death. See, that's Mary in some sense. She's being called all kinds of things that are completely untrue about her. Good grief. And yet she sees with the eyes of faith that her deliverer has come. And so even amidst the stares and points and whispers and murmurs, she can praise. Mary praises God and she sings of his reversals. She says, verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, look, from now on all generations will call me blessed. If you're counting reversals, that's number two. The first was the whole greeting blessing thing when she walked in the door and under the inspiration of the Spirit, Elizabeth turned that on its head and blessed her. She continues, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Did you catch that? Because it's not for everybody. I think we've got to say that. 
His mercy is for those who fear him. And that's true in every generation. Those who, like Mary, go all in, who recognize, wow, I need to be forgiven. And I'm giving my life to the one who alone is worthy of it and can take it and make great things of it. It's particular. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It's a call to faith in Jesus. And she continues, she says, he has shown, it's all past tense. It's fascinating. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has scattered. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. That's reversal number three. He has brought down the mighty from their throne. That's four. And exalted those of humble estate. That's five. He has filled the hungry with good things. That's six. And the rich, meaning the dishonest and unjust rich, those that walk upon and tread upon others to create wealth for themselves unfairly and unjustly. The rich, what has he done for them? Those kind of people he has sent away empty. That's quite the reversal. That's number seven. He has helped his servant Israel, God's people, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, ever, through whom God had promised that the seed of the woman through the lineage of Abraham would one day come. And you want to stop there, too, and say, okay, Mary, here, here's the thing. You know, you're speaking as though this has already kind of all occurred. Um, but I still know people like this. I mean, I can give you names, you know, Mary. So what's up with all the past tense? She speaks of it as though it's as good as done, and that's true. But here's the deal. The seed of God has been planted in her womb. The seed of the woman who is the Lord Christ has come at Christmas. And then he lived that perfect life, that walk. He died that sinner's death for his people. He rose again from the dead. We can look back on it now from our perspective. And he has put in motion something that no one and nothing can stop. And what is that? It's the reversal of all that was lost in the garden. It's the restoration of God with us. It's the undoing of sin and of death for all of eternity. And that has very real implications for our very real lives. And I was just thinking about life and what so many people here are going through. You know, some of you have lost or are losing loved ones who have either died in faith or will die in faith. And the reality is, you know, all of us are in that boat. It just doesn't feel as imminent to all of us. But it's real. And that's pretty real. That is incredibly devastating. But if they share the same Savior that you do, if you share the same Savior that they do, it's not goodbye forever, it's goodbye for now. And what's going to happen in the end? God is going to reverse what you have lost and grant you that loved one back. And not just for you know 50 or 60 or 70 or 10 or 5 or 3 years, but for forever. There should be a little praise in that, I think. There's something that says, yeah, there. 
Some of you have lost your reputations, either because of something you've done or something somebody else has said about you. It's unfair. It's unjust. You're going, hey, Mary and I, like I can relate to that woman. And maybe you've lost your reputation as well because, you know, you've taken a stand with Christ with somebody or for Christ with some community or whatever the case may be. And people think you're a little bit, I don't know, nuts. But what is your eternal reputation? It's true now, but forever you will enjoy it. It's washed. It's forgiven. It's all those things undone and redeemed by God. It's child of God. It's son or daughter of the king. There's something to that. Some of you have lost the last three, four, five years great wealth in an economy that is very fragile and very affected by corruption. Some of you have given away great wealth, notwithstanding the economy. Think about that. And great, by the way, isn't always the same for all of us. It can be a very little bit and very great to us nevertheless. I had lunch with a guy a couple of weeks ago who said, you know what I've realized is I have too much. Think about that. And someday, he says, I will stand before God and have to answer for the reality that I know to be true, which is that I have too much. You ever thought that? Think of the wealth that is yours in heaven. It's not subject to corrupt economies. It's not something that you, you know, bequeath in a will because you're going to die and leave it behind. It doesn't, as our Lord tell us, tells us, you know, corrupt and rust and the moths eat it and whatnot, those kind of images of it wasting away. And it isn't limited, it's infinite. You are co-inheritors with Christ of His infinite resources, good grief, the people of Haiti and the people here who belong to Jesus are wealthy indeed. Something, isn't it? Some of you have lost relationships with people that you love and they've been eaten away by selfishness and sin. And maybe it's yours and maybe it's theirs and maybe it's a combination of the two. That's usually the way that it works. And yet as selfishness and sin are disposed of and reversed and done away with, there's eternal restoration there. That's something I think to praise for. Many of us, as we get older, suffer the loss of our capacities. You know, we're just physically not who once we once were. We're not mentally who we once were. We deteriorate. This is a life that moves from life to death as opposed to the next life, which moves from death to eternal life. You're not who you once were, but you're certainly not who you're going to be either. It's an amazing thing. Many struggle with sin and addiction, and it's a struggle even for those who, who by the power of God's grace are, are being delivered by it. It's still every day a battle, every day a battle, every day a battle, every day a battle that will end. And why is that? Because the seed has been planted. Because the Son of God has come. And because he has lived and died and risen again for all who put their faith and trust in him. And as you do that, as you come to him, you're not just made clean and new. You're invited into a walk through life and through all of eternity. And walking with God results in praise. So I want to close by asking you a question and giving you an assignment. Here's the question. Do you know this Jesus?
Do you really know him? Have you come to this Christ and recognized him for who he is? Or is this a story that maybe until now has just been a little too fantastic for you? Have you reckoned with the reality that the God who speaks the worlds into being can do this too? Nothing is impossible with God, we were told by the angel. Has that resonated with your heart in such a way that you're ready now to come to him, not just with your sin, but with you? And to begin to learn to walk down his path. All right, well, then here's the assignment. I want you to sit down this afternoon, pen and paper, and I want you to write down what it is that has been causing you to despair this year that we're almost at the end of. Or maybe what's causing you to despair now. And then I want you, instead of focusing on it and being overwhelmed by it and despairing all the more over it and having that wash over you and cause fear and anxiety and all of the things that come so very naturally and natively to each one of us, I want you instead to try by faith to see it with the eyes of faith and to realize that your deliverer will deliver you from this too. That he's at work in this. Not only will He reverse it forever for you, but He will redeem it forever for you by using it to make you different and by blessing you, returning glory for suffering forever and ever and ever and ever. And then amidst tears, if that's what it takes, I want you to write out a prayer of praise to your King. The seed's been planted, guys. The Lord has come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have not wound up the universe like a clock and left us in our squalor. To the effects of our pride and of our sin and of our selfishness. To eat and to devour one another. But instead, the promised deliverer has come, who is the Lord Christ. God, give us faith and bring deliverance to us through him. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us the realities of this real story, of this real girl, of this real Jesus, and take them to heart that you might capture our hearts with the reality that you have begun in Christ, the process of reversing all things, a process that when he returns again, he will forever complete. Call us to walk with you, Lord, and give us courage and faith to do it. Empower that path and empower us to walk down it by your spirit and illuminate it with your word. For your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. And Lord, let us walk it together in community. We pray for these things and we bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.